Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey everybody, welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. And I'm in Los Angeles. How's it going out there? How are you doing? Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. My guest today is Marie-Helene Bertino, author of a new novel called Beautyland. I like the fact that Writers don't have to retire because I love the work so much that I hope I'm always expressing myself through the written word. I've always wanted to be a writer since the time I had conscious memory. I was writing and expressing myself through this way. And I hope that, you know, it, it that always happens. And I hope that I'm able to continue to su surprise myself and stay open to being changed by other writers and other artists and musicians and I think that's that's the that would that's the best way of doing it. All right, that was Marie Helene Bertino. Her latest novel is called Beautyland, available now from Farrar, Strauss and Giroux. It published just yesterday, I believe. Beautyland tells the story of a young girl named Adina Giorno. Adina is born to a single mother in Philadelphia, but Adina may be an extraterrestrial sent to Earth to report on the behaviors and idiosyncrasies of human beings and other earthly creatures. This is a very smart, very original novel with a great conceit. It is a book that enables the reader to see the world with new eyes. And it is also a very funny book. My conversation with Marie-Helene Bertino is coming up in just a bit. Just a reminder before we get going that I do a weekly email newsletter. You can subscribe for free over at bradlisty.substack.com. 
Likewise, there is a Patreon for this show. You can join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. I would love it if you did that. Help keep this show going into the future. Today's episode is brought to you by Tin House, publisher of the novel Nonfiction by Julie Meyerson. Nonfiction is the official January pick of the Other People Book Club. I just talked to Julie Meyerson on this show. Her novel is outstanding. The conversation was candid and insightful and fun. I recommend that you check it out. My conversation with Julie Meyerson. Her novel, one more time, is called Nonfiction, available now from Tin House. All right, so my guest today is Marie Helene Bertino. Her new novel is called Beautyland, available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Marie Helene Bertino's other books include the novels Parakeet and 2 a.m. at the Cat's Pajamas. She also wrote a story collection called Safe as Houses. Over the course of her career, she has received the O. Henry Prize, the Pushcart Prize, the Iowa Short Fiction Award, the Mississippi Review Prize. She has also received fellowships from places like McDowell and New York City's Center for Fiction. Her work has twice been featured on NPR's Selected Shorts, and she teaches creative writing at New York University and Yale University. It was really fun meeting Marie Helene Bertino and talking with her about her life and her work, and in particular, this new novel of hers entitled Beautyland. Here she is, folks. This is my conversation with Marie Helene Bertino. I have heard that often, and I've seen it play out in certain things. Like I remember reading an article once about how Philadelphia's exported art all have to do with people who lose. Like the movie Rocky, for example, like he loses at the end. We had a horse, Smarty Jones, that was characterized by how how much he lost at the time. And I also heard Philadelphia referred to as a second city for the first time in my life a few weeks ago, which I had never heard. And 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 I don't necessarily agree that it's a second city. I think it's very much its own thing. Growing up there, you know, what did I know? I didn't know anything about any other city or town or any other way of living when I grew up in Northeast Philadelphia, like Adina does in the book. So to me, the whole world was, you know, very shoddy zoning regulations that allowed a miniature golf course next to a strip mall, next to a real estate office, next to a playground. And I was... Yeah, I was intimidated by a lot. I can hear members of my family saying, you weren't shy growing up because I think I was different in the home. I think that with my brothers, I grew up around boys um, with brothers, and I, I don't think that they would agree with the estimation of me as shy, but I was the youngest, I was the baby, and I was the only girl and I felt that I was unable to kind of relate in the way it seems that other kids were able to relate when they were in school. And so learning and, and school and teachers 
became my refuge. They were, school was very much a place where I felt like as hard as I worked was met with the same kind of reward. And I think that that is why in Beautyland, school is such a, a big part of Adina's life. Uh, literally, Celestial School, which is called the Night Classroom in Beautyland, where her superiors kind of teach her things way beyond her ken as a little girl growing up, and in her actual school, where the teachers actually see her and her uniqueness and her weirdness isn't treated as something other than uh, cool and singular. And I very much had that experience too. Okay. So we should probably right now for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the novel, orient them a little bit in terms of the basic conceit <laughs> of the book. You talked about Adina and uh, the night classroom and her ordinary life. Like people are probably sitting at home wondering what you mean. So can you just give <laughs> like a broad strokes overview of who Adina is and what the conceit of your novel is? Of course. And I hope it's not the, I hope it's the only time that readers at home are like, what is she talking about? Beautyland <laughs> is, is the story of a lifespan of, a woman who believes that she is not from earth and she communicates with what she calls her superiors on a planet called planet cricket rice through via fax machine that her mother drags out of the trash uh, one day in her youth. And she spends her life notating on human beings, which she considers to be her job. And so Adina Giorno is very much a reporter, a journalist, a writer figure, and that separates her from most of her peers for most of her life. Planet Cricket Rice. That's the closest human equivalent to how, to the closest English equivalent to her planet's true name. Okay. And so <laughs> I'm wondering, first of all, if you feel like as an adult, you remain shy, or if that's something that you sort of associate with your youth? Well, you know, like many shy kids, I, well, I found theater, first of all, when I was 13. So like many shy kids, I A, found theater, which allowed me to come out of my shell and find solace with other people once I got out of my shell. And I also compensated for being shy by being extroverted at times. And so I, I, even though I was nervous and intimidated by adults mostly when I was growing up, I desperately longed to be part of the world. And I longed to see other places. And I had a, a pretty profound curiosity about how other people lived not nosiness. I was just really curious how everyone was doing this wild thing called living and life. And so I was able to bridge the gap between what I felt like was my inability to be loud in the world um, by this way of being extroverted and theater and writing and a lot of my extracurricular curricular activities helps me with that. And in terms of outer space, the sort of fantastical aspect of your uh, fiction, 
that you're that you're becoming known for. I'm wondering if, as a child and as an adult, you have like as a kid, did you have a high degree of fascination with outer space? <laughs> like, was this something that you were you looking? Were you one of those kids who was looking to the sky and really wondering what was out there? Um, with a greater degree of intensity than the average kid? I'm embarrassed to say that no, I, I really didn't. Did you? Were you one of those kids? No, no, I wasn't. I don't think, I think maybe as an adult, I've become more that way. Mm-hmm. I went through a really intense period during the pandemic, maybe where I was like thinking about aliens a lot. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, and, a, a lot of people are. Yeah, it's been in the news. And by the way, I'm curious now as I say that to understand what the psychological connection is between the pandemic and me like wanting to escape the earth mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, or be taken away somehow. But I uh, I just I couldn't help but wonder because you are writing in this mode. And I was also wondering if Adina as a character and this novel as a whole was originated in a short story. I think I have that right. Was it the mm-hmm. short story, sometimes you break their hearts, sometimes they break yours? Is that a correct read? Yes, it is. That's exactly okay. right. Mm-hmm. I, I like hearing that. I think that's an actual, I think that's a, a relatively common thing for writers to go through where they write a novel that had its origins in a shorter piece of work. Can you talk about that life cycle and like where Adina and this kind of uh, ambiguous, I, I, I call her an ambiguous alien because the mm-hmm. way that you just characterize it is we're not entirely certain mm-hmm. if this is an alien or some kid who feels like one, but you just talk right. about the the creative origin story. Or both, right? Alien and a kid who feels like one or a little of both. Yeah, sure. Sometimes You Break Their Hearts was in my first collection and was directly derived by my almost lifelong observation that customs, rituals, uh, opinions, laws that we have in the human world are just downright ridiculous sometimes. How our body works and 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 what we how how we behave in public and what our social customs are and of course that varies um, from country to country and and in different religions are just downright silly if you take out the objective understanding of them. So for example, things like the fact that we secrete water from our eyes when we are sad or in love or frustrated uh, or happy is just so funny when you take out the human understanding of it. And so I, I began to keep a folder of those things on my desktop and it was called Notes on Human Beings. And after I wrote that story and it was published, I noticed that the person at the helm of that story wouldn't let me go, and nor could I stop taking notes on human beings. And the folder kept growing and growing and growing. And then around the edges of the observation, this character started glimmering through um, the tapestry of all of those notes. And I, and I thought, I wonder if this could be a novel. But for it to be a novel, as I found out, I not only had to have the semblance of a character, I had to have the whole, you know, physical location 
and name of the character. I had to have backstory and family and, and I had to build her out. And that became the project of bringing the story into the novel. The other thing is, is that the story is written in first person and I found, and with a, with a very voicey, like the showcase of that story is voice. She's really, really funny. She, but she's not very well developed because she doesn't have to be in a 10 page story. For the novel, she had to have layered depth underneath these observations. So the first person, unfortunately, I tried it. That voice didn't sustain itself over the course of 300 pages. And so I had to retype the novel when I was finished the first few drafts from first person into third person. Um, in fact, I went to a writing residency thinking that I was about to finish the novel it wasn't necessarily a residency. My friend Amy Brill, another fiction writer who is lovely, one of my friends, and I went to her house for like a weekend of writing. And I found as soon as I got there that it, the novel was in the wrong voice. So not only was it not finished, about to be finished, it had to be completely retyped. And I also knew that I would need more than three or four days to do that or even start that because I needed the kind of momentum that would take, I knew it would take me months to do it correctly. So Amy was typing along for the four days and having like this beautifully productive, gorgeous, like summer long weekend. And I was just kind of stymied staring at the wall, reading trashy magazines, honestly, <laughs> because I knew I'm like, I can't, I, I need more than, than this weekend will allow. So then I, I, went home and I started changing the novel to third person. And as soon as I did, what happens when the craft decision is correct, I've found is that coincidences and magic begins to occur. And as soon as I changed the voice, I mean, within pages, other things began to come through the narrative. Her mother became really important. Um, the people in her neighborhood became important. The neighborhood became important. And somehow backing away from the intimacy of her voice allowed me this buffering distance that enabled the world to come through a little more. And it was really, it was just magic. And I, I knew I had it. It was just one of those great, great moments that you hope for as a fiction writer. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that when the craft decision is right, the magic starts happening sort of feels like every book has its way of being, or every story has its way of being told. And until you find that way, it's going to resist you. Mm -hmm. And this observational distance that you just described, where you backed away from the intimacy of being inside of Adina's head and you know writing the story through her voice is related in my mind to the notion that Beautyland is such a deft book at the level of human observation, and yet there is an extraterrestrial or a possible extraterrestrial at the heart of the book. And it reminded me as well, because this is also a funny book, and we haven't mentioned that yet, but people should know that these observations, they, they have like a distinct ring of truth. And sometimes it's like, what did Muhammad Ali used to say? Like, you know... It, what is it like humor is the truth, but faster or something like that? Like that's kind of how the humor operates in this novel for me is that 
she'll make these really plain spoken observations and be sending them back to the mothership or to planet click, you know, cricket rice or whatever. And they just make you go, Oh yeah, that really is how it is with people. We really do secrete water out of our eyes when we're happy and sad. And (laughs) people really do tend to not like it when other human beings are happy. (laughs) You know, some of the, some of the observations are sort of, uh, sad, you know, there's a kind of, uh, heartbreaking quality to them. But Mm -hmm. all of which is to say, that's interesting that you could be so sharp in observations about humans while writing about an extraterrestrial. It made me kind of think of Kurt Vonnegut in a way, because Mm -hmm. there's something, there's like an extraterrestrial POV or what I would call a a celestial POV, uh, where you're kind of like looking down on the planet and observing the species. That's the feel that I had. Right. Which is why the third person was necessary too, because she's reporting on humans, but she's also desperately hoping that someone is looking down on her and that she will one day be collected either on earth or beyond. Did Muhammad Ali say that? That is really funny. I attribute a quote that's similar to that to George Saunders, who said, humor is being told the truth faster and more directly than we're used to, which I've you know what? Really liked. I- I have one of these memories that is suspect. <laughs> so uh, do I. <laughs> it's just a jumble. I'm pretty sure it was Muhammad Ali. And then probably George Saunders was paraphrasing him. And probably Muhammad Ali was paraphrasing someone. But I could be <laughs> misremembering and maybe it was George Saunders. So we'll give both of them credit. How does that sound? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Everyone's paraphrasing everyone else anyway. But That's yes, right. it's interesting to hear you say, if I'm understanding you correctly, it's funny that she's observing life so acutely and so well, hopefully, thank you. And she's an extraterrestrial because I actually believe the the reason she is able to observe them so well is because she is extra to the terrain, because she is an other, because she is not of them, so to speak. That buffering distance I, I was talking about is also the distance that is sometimes necessary to really truly see something. So as a writer, unfortunately, sometimes, but fortunately, most times, I feel like I have to be apart from society and human beings to really see. And apart from experiences I've had, some time has had to go by. Literally, I had to move away from Philadelphia and be two hours north on the turnpike before I was kind of able to turn back around and see Philadelphia and see my experiences there as something that even warranted writing about. And so this distance isn't, I find it to be absolutely crucial and necessary. And that is baked into the metaphor that's at the heart of Beautyland. That makes the equation possible. Adina is able to see how bananas human beings are about things like fried eggs on everything and how like the song Amazing Grace seems to be one of the only things that crosses cultural and religious lines and that gives people hope because she is, you know, quote unquote alien to the world. Well, 
I feel like, you know, it has a POV matter and a human matter. Mm-hmm. Getting that kind of distance and sort of forcing yourself to view human behavior through that lens is a useful exercise. You know, not only does it lead to a, a, a good novel, but it also could just lead to like new perspective, you know, like something oh, yeah. about that, like looking from above or looking through the eyes of a total other, somebody who would be naturally confused by what's going on around oh, her. Yeah. Uh, it's fun to read. It's fun to read. It oh, makes that. the reader by proxy have to reevaluate these things that we otherwise take for granted in our day to day. Right. We just go through yeah. life and we just accept at face value that everybody's sort of like moved by amazing grace and people tend to respond poorly when they're in the presence of somebody who's super happy and you know, all <laughs> yeah, this kind right. of stuff, you know? Exactly. If I do nothing else, Brad, I hope to make the familiar very, very strange so that like sometimes in interviews I'm asked, what do you hope the reader takes from the book? And I never know how to answer. And normally I'm like, I don't, I I have no idea. Maybe some positive feeling, that would be nice. But for this book, I have a really distinct answer that what I hope a reader takes is, is that it fucks them up a little bit for the next few hours after they put the book down and encounter the world. I hope they encounter it as, as if for the first time a little bit to see and notice every single moment of our existence, like the plates we use and the things that we say to one another. Beginner's mind, I think is a good, is a good description of Adina as well. She constantly comes at things with this unfettered understanding. And in that way, she's kind of my hero. You know, many characters I've written have been wishes I've made. And I think that that part of Adina, though a lot of what has happened to her is sourced from my own life, that she constantly keeps this beginner's mind is, is, is more of an aspirational craft thing, I think. Well, I mean, I walked away thinking to myself once again it's not the first time i've thought this but this reminded me yet again of how deeply strange life is mm. <laughs> like it's easy to lose an appreciation for that because we get caught up right we get caught up in our conventional reality but this book does make you press pause and you go oh yeah how weird and i also have to say and this is just bringing to mind it's semi related <laughs> that i share with adina in a way that gave me great affection for her a disdain for loud chewing noises, like mouth noises. Uh-huh. So I was, and so for people listening, Adina is sensitive to sound. And so people eating popcorn in the movies, for example, drives her crazy. Mm-hmm. Count me among the aliens who are the same way. Are you this way? Yes. So <laughs> okay. do you consider yourself to have what is known as misophonia? I probably do. Mm-hmm. I, I, And I just think like, I just think that like sound intrusion in the wrong context is rude. It's interesting and not surprising that you would have hypersensitivity to sound considering what you do and considering that the first 10 minutes of our time together was spent, okay, go to this file, make this sound, turn this noise down, make sure you don't, your refrigerator's not running. Do you have, do you have a landline? And I mean, it, it makes sense, but I was also like on it too, because, and I'd, I'd already thought of a lot of that because I too am very sensitive to sound. Misophonia, 
which I mean, I don't know if it has been totally legitimized yet or not. I was so supremely happy when I heard that word for the first time, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, is accompanied by rage and is accompanied by a really um, enhanced reaction of perturbedness to the sound as well. So, and normally from what I've read, there's, there's one kind of sound in particular. So some people can't stand the sound of phlegm in someone's nose. Some people go berserk if they hear a pen clicking. For me, it is mouth noises and, and eating noises to the chagrin of everyone I've ever known well. Normally, I, ha I like to have some kind of music playing or, or something, but I've also worked on it so that I can be a non-aggravating person in the world to, you know, my loved ones. Is it something that you've worked on or do you just allow yourself full throttle aggravation? Grumpiness. No, I mean I can deal. I, I can deal. If I have to be at a, <laughs> if I right. have to be at a table at somebody's house, I'm not going to like start enforcing rules. But it's just. <laughs> but you want to? I, bet. I do. You I I think I think it's objectively gross. I don't see what the yeah. argument is. Like I feel like I'm like I don't see why we're even debating this. It's disgusting to listen to somebody chew loudly, <laughs> like masticate, uh, including me. You know, it's not like I'm above this, and so I just mm -hmm. think that the whole concept of the quiet meal around the table needs to be reevaluated. I think we, uh, I think we've kind of accepted this as status quo and, uh, interesting. Now, like Brad, do you know, are you, are you aware that many people find a quiet meal around the table, like a really beautiful, joyful thing that they, yeah. that they, like, go, <laughs> <laughs> they go to great lengths to, to have these things. Yeah. Listen, listen, Humans I are went wild, on. right? Yeah. Humans are wild. Mm -hmm. I, I want to talk as well uh, in a related way about her, uh, the issue of her name. Mm -hmm. And I believe it is taken or inspired by Adina Talve Goodman. I, mm -hmm. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But can you just talk about who she was and how she informed creative choices in your book, especially around oh, the, Adina's name? Absolutely. So Adina was a dear, dear friend of mine. Um, we met in New York and she, uh, she was born with a single ventricle heart and had been waiting for a heart transplant for most of her life and had one when she was um, 19 or, or 20. And when I met her, she was well and was enjoying, you know, being this like wonderful, beautiful time in her life when she was super well. And we became really close. We talked about writing all the time. We would have dinners in New York where we would discuss, you know, she, she ended up writing nonfiction and going to University of Iowa's program for nonfiction, which she hadn't planned, but she was going to write about her health troubles. And she was just someone who, she was a dear friend who everyone knew was special and lovely and wonderful while she was alive, which makes me very happy now because she passed away when she was 31 and um, of cancer that was related to the medicine that she was on that kept her heart strong. And so, you know, just knowing her helped me as a human. She was just someone who was naturally 
in perspective all the time, just knew what was important and what wasn't and was joyful and a dancer. And she was super funny. And one of the last significant hangs we had, we went to the Brooklyn Historical Society and watched the movie Moonstruck that they were showing. And we walked around with my partner, Ted, after the movie and um, pretended to kick cans down the street like Cher did in that movie. Like she was just goofy and wonderful and um, made me a better person. And when I got married, my partner and I had our vows. Part of our vows were that we wanted our first texts to each other read in front of our friends and family. And so we had to decide like who would read for each other. And uh, my partner chose his best friend and I chose Adina because she just had this vivaciousness. And I knew that if, if I had any, if I could choose anyone to stand in for me, it would be her. And then we lost her shortly a, a couple years after I got married. And when it came time to name this very special character, I thought in tribute to Adina, I could have her kind of stand in for me again, because though it's her name, it's, it's based more directly on my life than anything else that I've ever written. And so it was kind of me asking her to stand in for me again. And Giorno, her last name, which no one has asked me about yet, is actually the, ca- the characters, after- the, 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 the alien or the ambiguous alien character is Adina Giorno. Yes, correct. Her last name is Giorno, which means day, like Bon Giorno, um, is after the poet John Giorno, um, who passed away a couple years ago. And he was a huge figure in art, in, in New York City's poetry and art communities. And I would hear him read every New Year's Day at the Poetry Projects Marathon. It was like an all-day poetry marathon. And my favorite part would be when John Giorno would get up there and read one of the best readers of his own work that I've ever seen. And though I never met him, he made me proud to be Italian. Um, He was like super gay and super fabulous and a wonderful performer. And I, I privately considered him to be kind of like an artistic grandfather to me the grandfather I always would have wanted. So that's where Adina Giorno gets her name from those two beloved people in my life. And the neighborhood in Philly where you were raised and where Adina is raised are Italian, like pretty heavily Italian American. Is that correct? Um, it has, it, it definitely has a big Italian American community. It has a lot of different communities. Um, but that, yeah, but that's one of them. And that's where I was raised. I was raised um, alongside a very thriving Irish American community as well, which is, um, you know, kind of common in the northeastern cities. And so, when my grandparents came to the country, for, both from Italy and from the Basque region in France, they settled in Philadelphia, and a lot of their friends were the Irish. And Adina is raised by a single mother, and. Mm-hmm. This character, it's, her name's Therese. Is that right? Therese? Therese. Therese, sorry. And mm-hmm. she works with people who are disabled. She works in a facility that helps people with disabilities. And I know from poking around that this is drawn from some real life stuff. Your mother, you were raised by a single mom and she worked with people who had severe mental disabilities. 
So here again, I have a child with with disabilities. So I was like, I like this mother in real life. I like this mother on the page yeah. <laughs> uh, because it's yeah. tough work. That is tough work. People who do that work really are saintly in my view. Like uh, to work with people who are disabled is it's it's a good thing to do, but it's a very difficult thing to do, especially over the long haul. And I want to say your mom did it for 37 years and did not take a single sick day. Is this right? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, that is that is correct. So, and my mom's name is Helene Therese. And so this, the mother in Beautyland took her name from, from my mother's name as well. And I, off, and I also don't, in addition to everything you just said, I also don't read it a lot in fiction. I don't read characters who are working with that population. And I, I want to say I'm not an expert at the, the population that my mother worked with. And, but I would, I would describe them as severe disabilities. So nonverbal, people who are not able to live on their own. Back when I was growing up, her facility was called a school and then it 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 changed to um, facility, and it, it you know the nomenclature around working with severe disability has changed a lot since you know the eighties and nineties as well. And I wanted to reflect that in the book, in addition to things that my mom would come home and and tell me. She worked in health services for almost forty years until and and while she was doing that, she went back to school to get her GED, then her college degree, then her master's in education, so that when she was 71, instead of retiring from health services, she actually switched careers and began teaching kindergarten, which is what she had always wanted to do her whole life. So my mom is a figure of tremendous strength, and also it was really hard to grow up with someone who was just like, never take any sick days and never call out and always, you know, operate from the most altruistic side of your heart and benevolence. And, and it was a very high bar in many ways. And I, I didn't say, Oh yeah. Oh my gosh, Brad. Yeah. There was a lot of like, it wasn't hard to rebel. I'll say that because literally just calling out from a job um, was a, was a major rebellion. But I, I will also say that I didn't want her to be, I didn't want the character to be too angelic. So I muddied up the character in Beautylands of the sing- of the mom because if I were to actually write my mother on the page, people would be like, I, this woman is just too much. She can't possibly exist. <laughs> and she's and she's just so annoyingly, you know, um, perfect. So I in Adina's childhood, when she's in the fifth grade, her mother participates in an activity, this is how I will say this, that um, some people would find morally wrong. And I did that deliberately to muddy her up. And it actually, funny enough, this tends to happen. As soon as I had her make that choice, I actually liked her a lot more because she in some ways is really brassy and bold and a, a really great mother and example for Adina, but she also has this part of her that just really wants to be dancing on the lit dance floor of Bob and Barbara's and like drinking with her friends too. She has Adina when she's very young and she, and her youth ends at that point, you know? And so she still has that girl who wants to be wild and free 
as well. And so I have never, or I shouldn't say never, but I don't read too many characters who grow in a good way over the course of an entire book. And I, and I wondered, could I do that in a way that I would find interesting? And so the character of the mother became um, super important and, and, and a diagnostic tool for me as well to see what I was capable of, of doing in a, in a relatively positive character. It must have been fun sort of sullying the mother character, make, giving oh, yeah. her a little bit of an edge, that, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's always fun having my character say things that I would never have the balls to say or like do things that I would never have the courage to do. Yeah. I, oh, it's so fun. You know, I mean, it's just great. And, you know, Adina's observations too are an example of that as well because she's like, for example, there is a diatribe toward – the latter part of the book that she goes on about the figure of Yoko Ono and how Yoko Ono represents a deep, deep, deep internalized misogyny. Um, and she's funny about it and she's light about it, but it also reflects something I figured out in my life and kind of became a before and after. You know, I grew up with a lot of music fans, a lot of people who absolutely loved the Beatles. And they would say very freely, Yoko Ono robbed us of three more Beatles albums. And I would think, oh, okay, well, Yoko Ono robbed, robbed you know, music fans of Beatles albums without even thinking. And then one day you come to find that Yoko Ono is by far like the most brilliant artist and, and is, was, is just like such a wonderful figure in art and that this was just, utter misogyny carving out this, these, um, these almost like understood and acknowledged mottos in the music world that you were allowed to blame Yoko Ono for things. And the day I figured that out, I think I was never, ever again going to listen to any like truism regarding a female artist ever again. And it was freeing and it really like, it, it was amazing to figure out, oh my God, Yoko Ono is the living best. Yeah. yeah. So I was happy that I was able to put that in Beautyland. So I want to talk about the title of the book, Beautyland. And I think we've sort of touched upon some of the things that it's alluding to with respect to this sort of cosmic or alien view of ordinary human experience, kind of taking the reader into a deeper appreciation for the strangeness of the world and humanity and the beauty mm -hmm. of it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really where you're you're getting to. Yes, it's strange. Yes, mastication sounds are really annoying, but <laughs> ultimately there's a lot. Human beings are terribly flawed creatures, but ultimately there's quite a lot of beauty here, right? And there is a beauty to humanity that is worth appreciating. Is that, am I barking up the right tree? Is, is that what Adina ends up thinking? I mean, or just is that kind of thematically resonant with what you were going for or where you were coming to as a writer? Well, to quote a formative musician in my life, Bob Dylan, I've never experienced beauty without a little bit of pain. And I think that Beautyland as a location 
a very, very finite location, both as, you know, this cosmetics place that the mothers in her neighborhood go to, but also the location of her childhood, the location of her whereabouts as she is performing this important assignment on earth means, you know, that it's both of those things that I think that the word beauty like joy implies a little bit of pain. And I think that that encapsulates two of the broader currents in, in the book, you know, both of those things. And I think she finds equal parts of both of those things during her lifespan on earth. And wait, and Bob Dylan is related to that. Because I love him and because he's related to everything. (laughs) Um, No, he said, um, what I think it's in most of the song, most of the time I've never had, um, I've never behind every beautiful thing. There's been some kind of, some kind of pain, not dark. That's what it is. Yeah, not dark not, yet. Oh, thank you. Right. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yes. Thank yes. you. Thank okay. you. I would have been so upset if I had gotten that wrong. Behind yeah. every beautiful thing, there's been some kind of pain. Yes. There we go. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Bob. And, well, yeah. Thanks, Bob. And I got to say here again, I'm in, I'm totally simpatico with uh, Bob Dylan. I think I just read a tweet the other day. It was like in my timeline and I found myself like kind of clapping for it where they're like, Bob Dylan's underrated. And I was like, yes, yeah. like it's, it's a mat, you know, the mm-hmm. guy won the Nobel prize for literature and has like been celebrated kind of nonstop since he was like 22 years old. So it's a little Doesn't bit absurd. To, it's absurd to say <laughs> that this guy's underrated, but in a way, like in our culture, in our culture, I would go to the mat saying that he's like so interesting and has remained so vital in his art, so deep into old age. And he's got that kind of cranky edge to him that he has always had. Yeah. There's something timeless about him. And here's the thing that I would, where I ultimately land on is like, where is there a corollary? Like where there, there isn't, he's a one-off. Like there is no one in popular music that I can point to who seems like even remotely similar. Like Mm. there have been countless iterations of a boy band, right? That stuff happens. Like they come off the assembly line every five years. It feels like not to denigrate, Mm -hmm. but just to say, but like somebody who's truly like high art, like combining like high art and real poetry with like folk and all the different American musical idioms and blending them together and making it somehow relevant to mainstream music fans, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to do. And I just think that like the achievement that he, uh, like his achievement in music is pretty singular and maybe underappreciated in modern times. I feel like I feel like defending Bob a little bit. I love Bob Dylan. <laughs> Do you have a favorite think, album slash favorite song, or, or or have you been listening to him recently? Yeah, I mean, I I really I loved Time Out of Mind. That came out when I was mm-hmm. in college, and I would deliver pizzas and listen to that on cassette tape. <laughs> if, if that dates me. I'm sorry, but I was big into that album, yep. which is hilarious because I was like 21 and like I was like not dark yet. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, like, yeah. It resonated yep. so deeply for me, and then. You know, the older stuff, I mean, Highway 61, um, you know, that album is great. I like some of the, like I said, I like those albums of covers that he did. I'm blanking on the names of them because I'm terrible at that. But You're thinking um, of Free Will and Bob Dylan when he's walking down the street. Well, no, I'm talking about the album of covers in his later period where he's like, Oh, the actual album of covers. Oh, I thought you meant yeah. the cover. Yeah. No, um. no, 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 no. I'm thinking of like <laughs> when he's singing like, you know, Stardust and 
he sort of sings these old standards, like these old yeah. American standards, but he does it in that, you know, that older, like late period Dylan voice. And they're just lovely. And the orchestrations are really lovely. But Bringing It All Back Home is another album that I yeah. like from his early period. Like he was incredibly prolific over a period of like four or five years. Mm-hmm. I think it was, you know, when he kind of just was, he was making like two great albums a year. It was crazy. So I don't know, huge fan and love that uh, you're into him. Same. And yeah. I think too, like it, I'm always inspired when I see any artist in any medium who is like vital and creative into old age, because that is something to which I aspire. Uh, I love it mm-hmm. when like, he's never stopped moving. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you can never, he's, he's always a moving target. Like Bob Dylan is never resting on his laurels. It feels like. And I think, you know, you can point to a number of artists who fit this bill and it seems to be like a characteristic of them is that they never stop staying interested mm-hmm. and they're always taking stuff in and taking new stuff in right. and it's not, they don't get stale. You know, I feel like is maybe the formula is to never get so jaded that like you can't get excited about new music or experimentation. And mm-hmm. does that square with how you see it? That's so interesting. Absolutely. Because I think that it, I noticed that a lot of my favorite artists were productive until, until they died. And he's, yeah, he's definitely one of them. I think of bands like the Rolling Stones, Lou Reed. I'm just thinking of like the classics and how like they were making art their whole lives because that was synonymous to living for them. And, you know, when this comes up in writer circles, I I always, I, I like the fact that writers don't have to retire because I love the work so much that I hope I'm always expressing myself through the written word. I've always wanted to be a writer since the time I had conscious memory. I was writing and expressing myself through this way. And I hope that, you know, it, it that always happens. And I hope that I'm able to continue to su- surprise myself and, and stay open to being changed by other writers and other artists and musicians. And I think that's, that's the, that would, that's the best way of doing it. Along these same lines in terms of cultural touchstones that are in your book that I have to believe based on our conversation, you might share with Adina, mm-hmm. Carl Sagan. Yes. Uh, he's not a, he's not an artist per se, but as a scientist, I feel mm-hmm. like he's the closest to an artistic scientist that there is. He was a great writer. I shouldn't mm-hmm. say that. He actually was an artist in his way. Like, uh, I feel like Sagan, as a communicator about the sciences, was super gifted. And Philip Glass is another one. The music of Philip Glass figures yeah. prominently into this novel, and Adina has a great affection for it, mm-hmm. which I thought was a kind of a shrewd choice because there is something otherworldly about his music that I could imagine speaking to someone who feels otherworldly, you know? Yes. And I also thought that Philip Glass would be good for her to get into after she has her cultural awakening of hip hop in her childhood, because he, that repetition to me felt mathematic. And I feel like there is a, there can be a beautiful relationship between math and music and then math, music, and the galaxy. So I was thinking of um, in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, how the extraterrestrials in that movie try to communicate 
with the humans through these tones. I don't know. Have you seen that movie? It's been a while, but yeah, I'm it's thinking back to it now. Yeah. So there are these tonal sounds that they make that that is their language. And it's and it's a combination of music and math. And and so I had that in my head when I was thinking, okay, what kind of sound? Because Adina's planet is so based on sound and silence and intuition. And you know, what kind of what kind of sounds on earth would bring her solace? And I felt like the comfort of that repetition would would allow her to be at ease. And so Philip Glass was a was a a logical choice for that. And Carl Sagan, I wasn't necessarily super into Carl Sagan, but through researching and and thinking through her character, okay, what what would she get into? I was like, oh, Carl Sagan was around. Okay, let me look into Carl Sagan. And then I just only to find that he was like the coolest, right? Hip, hippest <laughs> yes. astronomer ever with his little turtlenecks and his like bowl cut, silky bob hair. Oh, loved it. So I've, I watched all his lectures and just, oh man, he, very, he taught me a lot. A very too. prescient, very prescient human being. Like his yeah. takes on the culture have, I think, largely been proven accurate like he kind of foresaw yeah. a lot of the decline that we are currently living through and yep to just this a very, very sharp day. mind yeah and and like i think it's like so there's something kind of heartbreaking reading him and thinking about him and just thinking about the dearth of like public intellectuals in our culture right he was a genuine yeah. guy who was like on the tonight show and was a deep yep. super brilliant guy like we need more of that please, you know, like right. in popular culture. He, unlike me in this interview, was also able to synthesize really complicated ideas into something that could be told to Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show. I, I watched all of those interviews and in such cool, identifiable ways. Um, I think, you know, like the public astronomers, like Neil deGrasse Tyson, I think has a little of that now too. Like, He's like the cultural touchstone of astronomy for for a large mass of people, which I think is neat. Um, which is also why I tried to make my science in Beautyland as accurate as is possible when you're writing about an extraterrestrial. Um, my students use the term science fact instead of science fiction, and. I was trying to make it super accurate. So if like the Neil deGrasse Tysons of the world came after me, I, I could at least have a semi-leg to stand on. And Carl Sagan's <laughs> research was um, what I used most of the time because he was not only brilliant mathematically, but he was also, he had a poet's vision. He was able to imagine things outside the realm and awning of his experience. And he allowed room for what he didn't know which I think made him like truly a genius. And so Adina and, and I um, are really comforted by someone like that because as she felt in the book, like he never stopped looking for her and he never stopped believing in her. And that's really powerful. And he, was a, he is a father figure to her um, and she didn't have one. And so it was, it was really cool to find Carl Sagan among uh, amid all the research it's sort of interesting as i'm listening to you to think that like modern american culture anyway seems to have like 
room for only one of these people. <laughs> like the dude who is uh, like the t- the cultural touchstone for astronomy was Carl Sagan, now is Neil deGrasse Tyson. There really can't be two. We just have one. We can only keep track of one. And then I'm thinking of like Diane Fossey was like the gorilla lady. <laughs> like then she died and it was like, okay, bring on Jane Goodall. And like, I mean, I don't mean to, <laughs> I don't mean to minimize, but do you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's not totally untrue. That's kind of crazy to think about. <laughs> only uh, one, only one person can be the gorilla person. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. We, we don't have room in our cultural conversation for more than one. That's it. <laughs> So before I let you go, there's something else I want to talk to you about because I found resonances in like some of the research that I was doing, uh, like interviews that I'd read with you that you have done in the past where you said the biggest heartbreaks of my life have been losing friends. Mm. And I think maybe you were referring to maybe friends who passed away, like the aforementioned Adina, uh, you know, the real life Adina, but Also, I think this book speaks to the ways in which we can lose friends because friends betray us or, you know, in high school, especially people can be cruel. Um, There's kind of a mean girls uh, like subplot. And, you know, I don't know. I just like to hear you talk about that because I think it's a, a very common truth and we don't, I don't hear it talked about enough, the way that losing friends can be really painful because like as an adult, I feel like some of losing friends just has to do with getting old and getting busy and moving away and not having proximity to people and then relationships sort of wither. Mm -hmm. And that's a heartbreak. And then there can be more explicit ruptures with people that can be difficult to bear. But Mm -hmm. you just talk about that because I think it's something we all go through, but we don't discuss enough. Yeah, I agree with you. And especially in the novel Before Beautyland Parakeet, that book was very much about family, finding family in alternate structures and friendship, especially female friendship. But I, I agree that that structure is so important. It can be so formative at any age, actually, and, and so necessary in regards to the quality of life. And my friendships have made me feel like I belong on the earth. So it, it, it wasn't a coincidence that in Beautyland, you know, her friendships were so important and also her family structure on earth. Um, she's very close to uh, a girl named Tony who features prominently in the book and Tony's brother, Dominic. And Dominic is based on, well, he's an amalgam of, of boys, men in my life who, with whom I've shared profound affinity. And we've normally hooked up because of loving music. And um, especially someone I grew up with, his name is Rocco DiCicco. And I told I Whoa, texted him a, a few weeks. <laughs> it's a great name. Yeah. I, I texted him a couple weeks ago and I was like, just so you know, one of the characters in Beautyland, you know, I was thinking of you when I was writing it. And he said, Did you know that it was me as you were writing it? Or was that some something you figured out after you were done the book? And I was like, Oh, that's such a good question. I'm not sure. Um, he hasn't read it yet, but there's normally there are normally brothers, brother figures in a lot of my work because I not only grew up with brothers, but I, I think they kind of 
my brothers kind of unlocked a certain brother shape in my life where I was always looking for brothers in the room. Um, and and I've, I've found a lot of really good ones who've been really important to me. And Rocco was def- is definitely one of them. But then just like friendship in general, it can just break your heart. I think you understand that romantic liaisons will end, like a breakup right. that has been greatly explored. You know, there are whole industries um, that are exploring breakups and romantic liaisons, but the friendship breakup would be would fall under, you know, what could be considered um, disenfranchised grief in that there isn't a whole industry and there aren't things built into society that address that kind of grief. Um, and so it's, you don't find as much support for it. And especially when, you know, you're a little writer girl growing up feeling pretty strange um, in most in most situations, um, finding my people has been absolutely integral. And in that way, you know, Beautyland to me is a queer book in many, many ways. Um, Adina, Tony, and Dominic are all actually, like literally gay, queer, but also the finding of the familial structure in Friends and finding chosen family is a queer lifestyle. And I was very much thinking of those things when I wrote it. And and that is very, very prevalent in my life. So yeah, I think that I think that more and more writers are putting that to the page, the kind of heartbreak that comes when you lose one of these people. And if I am contributing to that, I'm glad because I like that that's been one of my themes because it matters to me. So two more things. I always like to ask people about their career trajectory a little bit, the path that they took <laughs> to getting to publication because it's oh, yeah. heartening. It's heartening, I think, for people to hear when it's like, strangely, it's heartening to hear that it was difficult, which it always is, right? Of it's course. never easy to write books and get them into print and to make no, a life No, it's easy for this. some people. No, it's easy for some people. You think? Yeah, <laughs> oh, maybe. Yeah, Let, let's be real here, Brad. Yeah, <laughs> some people have an easier time than others. Easier. But I'm delighted yeah. to talk about this because I had, I did not have an easy time. So I well, like to talk about it for the others who are like, how, who have nothing to do with the writing industry and feel like they cannot be writers. Those are the people I really like to talk to. So yes, I'd well. be happy to talk about it. Well, I just read that uh, your early story collection entitled Safe as Houses, aforementioned, I don't know if we titled it, but it's the story collection mm-hmm. we were discussing earlier, yeah. was rejected 50 times. And there is a story in it called North of, which I, I believe f- features Bob Dylan. Is that the one that That's features right. Bob Dylan? That's so correct. he actually appears in your stories. That's how much you love this guy. And that there story on its on an individual level was rejected 36 times. So not uncommon like to be rejected a ton, but certainly you had to endure all of that and keep going. Mm-hmm. So can you just talk about the process and how you found the strength to keep going? Absolutely. So one tiny note though, Safest Houses, the collection wasn't rejected 50 times. The short story entitled Safest Houses was rejected, I think, something like 45 times um, in order to be totally accurate about my failures. um, (laughs) That's, (laughs) yes. So um, yes, Uh, Safest Houses, well, first I just want to say 
because I think it's important to say, you know, I grew up, I did not know any writers. I didn't know anyone who made their living as a writer. I, in Northeast Philadelphia, you know, you were expected to get married, have a family, buy, not rent a house. And that was considered, you know, that's the life. That's what you're supposed to do. And to, I didn't even know you could have a life, let alone a career in the arts. So from the very beginning, I had to kind of figure it out and discover it for myself. But like I said earlier in this interview, I've always, always wanted to be a writer. And so there was never going to be any life for me that didn't include writing, whether or not I ever got published. Both of my brothers were writers. It's something they showed me how to do. It, it just had to be writing. Um, and so I read- Wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry to interrupt, but yes. both of your brothers are writers, so they're, they're like professional yeah. writers? Um, well, my oldest brother is a newspaper man, so he has a newspaper in Maryland. Um, and my other brother writes, um, but not professionally, I think for himself, was like a poet. And so growing up, he, would, he, he wrote and would share poetry with me. Um, Interesting. And so I was reading these famous writers – and New York City was a common denominator in a lot of the works I was reading. So I was like, okay, that's where you go when you want to be a writer. So that's where I went. I'm, I'm making a very long story short. But I, I went to New York City and I was in an auditorium where a very famous writer was talking. And it was my first time in a room with any anyone even close to being a writer. So I was overjoyed. And that person said, you know, only 1% of writers make a living at writing. And you know, everyone in the audience is like murmuring meaningfully, like, oh, oh, oh. And I was delighted because I thought I would have to invent even the possibility of that. But to hear that 1% of people were already doing it, that to me <laughs> said it was possible. Right. <laughs> I was like, oh, I didn't even realize it was possible at all. So I was someone for whom a 99% failure rate was not daunting, you know, to, in a certain, to a certain um, respect. I think that should tell you a lot right there. So the natural rejection, and I mean, I've had so many rejections, not to brag, but I've been rejected by the very best institutions in the world over and over again since the time I was 11 years old. You know, they just... I just neutralized my fear of rejection because you just have to. And having no like connections or references, having no money. You know, I applied to NYU and Carnegie Mellon's writing programs for college. It was my dream. Um, and I got in, but my mom was like, there's no way we can send you to those schools. So I, it was just never, I just, I, I never, I, I wasn't able to float through. I, I, I was always kind of like, you know, finding my own path or, or bulldozing my way through my own path, as it were. Anyway, long story short, writing stories and sending them, submitting them like it was a part-time job over and over and over again, and small successes and just refusing to give up, you know, even after receiving no signals from the universe that it would ever happen, still finding my way through. And that was very much because of my fellow writers and my the beloved people in my life who kept saying, keep going, keep going, keep going. 
there were a lot of dark nights of the soul, but, you know, I always found a way to keep going because of this voice I've always had in me that said, you know, you're, you're on this earth to be a writer. And the publishing was never a guarantee, but the writing was a non-negotiable. I went to Brooklyn College for my MFA because it was $3,000 a semester and I could afford to work and go at night. But I didn't do that for many years after I got an undergrad degree because I was working and because I didn't know if an MFA was even beneficial. Um, But it was. And I got to study with geniuses like Michael Cunningham and Susan Choi. And um, I found my friends there. I found people there with whom, you know, I'm still sharing work with. And I just got through. But there was just this natural resilience and moxie. But I do not mean to imply in any way that it was easy because it wasn't. There were a lot of dark nights and I don't know how I soldiered through. Thankfully, I I have good people in my life who who didn't let me quit. And you're just stubborn, which I think is an essential quality, essential quality to be yeah. stubborn, right? Well, that's working class and lower income. I mean, we were blessed with no money and we just worked and I was it was instilled in me. You just work and work and work and work. And that's the answer to everything. Um, but I want to say, so people, you know, who are maybe in the same position, hear me say it, that is still not a guarantee because you can work for so long and still not receive any acknowledgement from the industry. Um, but I'd rather spend a day writing and failing than anything and then spending a day any other way. And I think that it has to be that way for you to continue to keep going. All right. So truly the last question I always ask this of my guests, <laughs> is there anything else in the works? Are you working on another book? Is there anything we can look forward to? Or are you just enjoying the publication of this one? Uh, no, I am not only enjoying the publication. I'm working on a collection, which will be out, I think this could change, in 2025. So that'll be my second collection of stories. And then after that, I'm actually working on a trilogy of books. Yeah, that should be exciting to to discover and figure out. Any hints as to what this trilogy is about, like genre-wise? Is it like, is it uh, genre fiction or is it literary fiction? Is it sci-fi? Is there something fantastical about it? There is something fantastical about it, and there will be no further hints, Brad. Okay. I respect that. <laughs> it's my duty to ask, but I am always respectful of people's desire for uh, privacy. So Appreciate we will let that. it, we will let it end there and people can just be on the edge of their seats waiting to see what it, what it turns out to be. <laughs> Thank you very much uh, for taking the time to talk with me. It's been a joy to uh, meet you and congratulations on Beautyland. Thank you so much, Brad. All right, folks, there we have it. That was Marie-Helene Bertino. Her latest novel is called Beautyland, available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. You can find Marie Helene on the internet at MarieHelenebertino.com. Follow her on social media. I believe she is on Instagram and Twitter. One more time, the new book is called Beautyland, available now wherever books are sold. Go get your copy right away. 
Don't forget to subscribe to The Other People Show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube, follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. You can subscribe for free to my weekly email newsletter over at bradlisty.substack.com, and you can join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. If you have a couple of minutes, please give this show a rating, pretty please, wherever you listen. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is, rate the show, review the show. It helps new listeners find the show. If you want to sign up for the Other People Book Club, you can do that at otherppl.com. If you want to get an Other People t-shirt or a sweatshirt, you can do that at otherppl.com. Finally, a quick plug for my latest novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so if you want me to read my book to you, that can happen. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up on Friday, there will be, as usual, a new flashback episode where I dig into the other people archives and share an outtake from an episode out of the past. So, I don't know what it's gonna be. It's a mystery. You're just gonna have to uh, listen on Friday and find out for yourself. Stay tuned. <laughs>